I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversation, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. My guest for today is Lindley Ashline, and I am telling you, this is like no other episode. Lindley is such an incredible, articulate speaker. At one point, I literally said, I have to pause for a moment because you took my breath away. So, I'm just going to leave it at that because what more needs to be said? All right, everyone, let's go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am really excited about this week's guest. This week, we have Lindley Ashline. Lindley, welcome to the show. Thank you. I, I just think this is going to be a really powerful episode. Um, I, I don't even want to say any more about who you are, what you do, because I would love for you to just introduce yourself to the listeners and talk about the work that you do. It's beautiful. All right. I'm Lindley, and I am a photographer, writer, and fat activist, a uh, body acceptance activist. I live outside Seattle, Washington, uh, and I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I do a lot of different things, um, and I have a short attention span, so this works out really nicely for me. <laughs> but I do, uh, I do client photography, uh, portraits, boudoir sessions, small business. Uh, I do stock photography, uh, primarily of people in large and very large bodies for other people and businesses to use in their marketing. Um, I have a web shop called the Body Love Shop that is all body positive and fat positive goods and artwork. Um, and I do help at every size consulting and, uh, and a lot of, uh, activism work, particularly on Instagram around body image and, uh, and privilege and systems of power and, and it's such fulfilling work. And I'm so, I'm so glad to be able to do it. There's, there's so many things I want to touch up on. And, and I also want to acknowledge we are we, I was going to say filming, we are recording this quite some time ago. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is what just happened on Facebook with the whistleblower. And I don't know if you saw any of the articles, but they were talking about how Facebook, Instagram, things like that leads to eating disorders and mental health issues and all this. So that's something I just want to put over on the, on a shelf. I want to first start with how did you get into this field, this industry? Let the listeners know that because, you know, I I know your story. So I I would like people to understand why you're doing this work. Yeah, I am. There's so many factors that come together in any given person's life story. Uh, But the the most important parts of this for me uh, were... Uh, does anybody remember Live Journal anymore? <laughs> I'm so sorry, I don't. What is it? Um, Live Journal was a, a pre-Facebook uh, community and and journaling site, and uh, and it was very nerdy, which I'm a huge nerd, so that that worked out nicely. But it was it was one of the sites that that existed before social media as we know it today. Um, I think it still does exist, actually. But uh, but there were you had your personal a page where you would write posts. And then there were community groups. And I stumbled across, this was about 2007. Um, I stumbled across a group called Fat Shanista. It's like fashionista, but with the word fat. And 
it was a complete revelation for me because I had grown up, um, you know, just like everybody in, in the developed world exposed to these messages about diet culture and these messages about what bodies are good and what bodies are bad and what bodies of certain sizes and shapes should or shouldn't wear. And I ran across this community that was full of people, primarily cis women, um, who were wearing amazing clothing and they were confident and they were bold and they were wearing form-fitting dresses and they were wearing things that were tight and had horizontal stripes and bright colors and all these things that were told that, 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 you know, larger people shouldn't wear. <laughs> and it was just this absolute revelation. Um, and I just lurked, you know, I just, I just watched for a really long time. Uh, and eventually I began doing my own, uh, my own outfit of the day posts. So taking a picture of myself almost every day and whatever outfit I was wearing at the time I was working uh, corporate jobs, like, you know, your standard uh, office worker day job and, and taking a photo of myself several times a week started forcing me to learn what my body actually looked like um, and to see what actually existed because we have so many body image messages internalized that when we look in the mirror, we can be kind of shocked by what's, you know, by how our self-conception is different from what actually exists. And so I started learning to see myself. Um, and then in conjunction with that, I had been a photographer for a really long time already at that point, uh, just doing nature photography, and which is, which is still a very, you know, a passion that I have. Um, so these two things that were sort of both hobby level, I guess, just sort of coexisted in my life um, for many years until in about 2015, um, I had had one too many awful corporate jobs, and I said I can't do this anymore. <laughs> um, I can't. I, I'm going to. I'm going to um, work and miserable myself into the grave, <laughs> and and I quit and started a photography business. And because these things uh, were coexisting for me, um, the photography and. Uh, from that live journal group, I stumbled across the fat acceptance community. This was before body positivity was really a thing. Um, and I started learning about the science of bodies and why diets don't work and why, uh, why bodies do what they do as far as weight is concerned. And I'm a person who likes evidence. I like to know why things work. I like to know I, I, I'm a very practical person as far as show me the show me the evidence. And uh, and so learning about why fat bodies do what they do and why all bodies do what they do. Um, by the way, when I say the word fat, I'm using it as a neutral descriptor for larger bodies. Um, you may or may not feel comfortable using that for yourself or other people. That's fine. Um, I just want you to know that I'm not using fat as an insult. <laughs> but but learning this, um, and again, I wasn't really active in the fat acceptance community, but I was absorbing blog posts and I was reading articles and I was, I was learning and, and going through my own body image process. So when I quit my day job, <laughs> I knew immediately that I wanted to work with fat people, uh, both because fat people are wildly underrepresented uh, and, and not served by the traditional photography community. And because these are my people, <laughs> you know, I live in a fat body. I, I understand how those bodies uh, function physically. I understand what's going to be comfortable or not comfortable uh, for people in larger bodies. And, and it's just such an underserved community. So it was both an opportunity to do good things for uh, people who are underserved and people like me. Um, but from a business standpoint, that was a market opportunity um, that... Uh, and that sounds a little cold-blooded, but when you're going to be a small business person, you have to find a niche, and and that was mine. And from there, I started out as a um, as a photographer whose online presence was very bopo, very love your body, it's good, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I couldn't stop there. I just found over time that. 
the people I was working with had been taught so many things about how their bodies were bad. And I, I just kept getting angrier and angrier and, and, and just wanting to fight and defend all these people in fat bodies who have been taught the most horrible things about themselves and their bodies because they happen to exist in a fat body. And, and that's how I kind of got into being an activist myself um, because I just couldn't, uh, you know, I just couldn't stay quiet about these things the more that I learn and the more that I heard people's stories. Um, and I had the privilege to be able to do that because I don't have a corporate day job. Nobody's going to fire me. Uh, and I am safe to do that. So I can fight on other people's behalf. And so I did. And I interrupt for one moment. I have a question. Did I hear this wrong? I, I was listening to some of the other episodes, podcasts you've been on. Did I hear wrong that you as the photographer, there were biases against you as a photographer in a larger body, that that in and of itself was also challenging something that you had to that you had to fight against. Did I, did I hear that incorrectly? No, that that's entirely correct. Um, at the time that I started in 2015, um, and now, now it's changing, which is wonderful. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day when body positive and fat positive photography are so common, uh, that they're not even, that it's not a niche anymore. Um, but, but both, yeah, as as a professional, I don't have I don't have a lot of photographer friends. Um, I don't have a network within the photography community other than a few other fat positive photographers, uh, because uh, both being in a marginalized body and working with marginalized people, those are things that are not acceptable in the larger photography world right now. Um, and again, that is slowly changing. I'm looking forward to it you know, changing completely. Um, but people, um, I have not found a lot of success networking and, and making professional connections in that world, uh, in part because I talk a lot about the worth of fat bodies in a way that makes people who are very invested in the status quo very uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's entirely correct. The interesting thing is, though, is it might be quote unquote, the cultural norm, but it's actually, and I may be getting my words mixed up, but it's not the status quo because the research says that 67% of the women in the United States are a size 14 and above. And if we were going to look at what modeling and, and photography typically represents that's not the status quo. Am I getting my my words mixed up? No, you're 100% correct. And that's because photography um, as a market and as it is currently practiced um, is aspirational. So when you go look at a photographer's portfolio or their website, you expect to see bodies that are um, perfected beyond what those bodies actually look like in real life um, because we have been taught that that's what we want. Um, if I'm a mainstream photography customer um, who is going to a mainstream photographer, I expect them to smooth my skin until I look like a China doll. I expect them to remove any fat rolls I might have. I expect them to tighten my butt and give me a facelift via Photoshop. Um, for me to look like an aspirational version of myself. And so because photographers are running businesses in a world where that is valued, that's what they get really good at delivering. And so most photographers, you're not going to see larger bodies on their websites because their websites are aspirational. And, and so it, it's a real shift, a real adjustment. Um, if you're working with a photographer who's going to portray you as you are, to uh, to be okay with experience in that, to know that you're gonna look like who you actually are in the body you have right now. And so a really important part of my working with clients is coaching. Um, uh, the sessions that I do, they're, they're half photography and half coaching uh, because it is really, and I'm not a therapist, <laughs> you know, I'm not 
Uh, I'm not a mental health expert of any kind, um, but an important part of my job is to guide people through learning to see themselves as they are. Well, you're guiding yourself, you're not guiding yourself, you're guiding others through lived experience, but lived experience that you've taken like through your own insight and maybe your own inner work, perceive it differently, which is why, by the way, to some degree, you might not be a, a techno, you know, technically a therapist, but you're, you're spiritually guiding people. You're helping them. And that's amazing. And, and all of it is just <laughs> that, that, getting angry at other people being oppressed and about being oppressed myself um, has led to this, you know, the more I speak out, the more helpful it is for other people. And the more I can incorporate that into my work, because people who come to me for photo sessions, it is often the first space they've ever been in, in their entire lives, where somebody genuinely thought their body was okay as it existed right then. Um, and, and genuinely wasn't, I'm going to be honest. Um, and I'm not, I'm saying this as a reflection of our culture. Um, when I say this, but, uh, for people who are in very fat bodies, um, this can be the first time that they have been able to display those bodies and not had somebody be grossed out and, and have, you know, not have people have a visceral reaction to those bodies that we just, that we naturally exist in. <laughs> and, and just to have that, I don't necessarily want to call it a safe space because it can feel very unsafe when there's a camera pointed at you, even if you trust the person holding it. So I, I don't want to call that a safe space necessarily, but a secure space where they know they're going to be treated respectfully. And they know that those photos of them are going to be done with, with respect and dignity because there's such a difference between um, photos that are created with respect that that honor the bodies that are on that you know on that that virtual stage that metaphorical stage and bodies that the photographer is just taking as a foundation for photoshop i i also want to point out that when a picture is photoshopped when somebody looks at their own picture and automatically goes to how their body looks we've lost the 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 caption of the memory that's that's the intention of photography of pictures not to scrutinize over yourself not to you know clean up blemishes it's to capture a moment and be able to reflect back on that on how funny it was or how loved you felt or holding someone's hand or you know doing a boudoir photo shoot which which is filled with love and excitement and and you know things like that and it all gets lost on body yeah and i think i think a really important component of my beliefs and the way those come out in in this work is that our bodies are the holders of our stories. Our bodies have, you know, every wrinkle and stretch mark and scar and tattoo and zit and, and, and uh, self-harm scars and, and uh, you know, the way our hair falls and, and, you know, whether we have a particular limb or not, those are all part of our story. Um, I worked a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, I photographed two different women in the same year who had, uh, who both happened to have large scars on their torsos. Uh, one was from heart surgery and one was from weight loss surgery. And both of those women assumed I would want them to cover that up. Um, partly because they were so ashamed to have those visible scars and partly because they just assumed that I would be ashamed of that and that I would want to hide that. And both of those women, I, I said, no, please allow me to capture that because that's an important part of your story. That is, that's part of your life, you know, and I want to hear those stories too, while we're here, <laughs> please, please, you know, if you want to share those. Um, and, and the thing is that not everyone is, is ready for that. Not everyone is going to be comfortable showing off, you know, a scar like that, but if they are able to trust me in that process, you know, we're going to create beautiful photos that include those parts of your story. 
because uh, the way that our beauty standards work, um, they, the, those standards erase us. When we erase our wrinkles and we erase our stretch marks and we cover up our scars and we, I don't know, um, we do do things with our hair that our hair doesn't necessarily naturally want to do to make it conform to beauty standards. Um, that is erasing us. It's creating these form factor bodies or trying to uh, that, that aren't us and our stories are valuable as individuals and collectively. And, and so our bodies hold those. And, you know, and if that means, you know, I've worked with folks who have chronic illnesses, who don't, who aren't able to stand for more than 60 seconds. And I think a, a mainstream photographer would get very impatient with that, but that's your story. That's your body. Who am I to, to say, no, that's inconvenient for me. So no, we have a chair ready and we have something for you to lean on and we, you know, we put you in chair positions and it's fine. Um, so, so my job is not, I mean, yes, it's to take photos, but, it, but kind of to come back to what you were saying is to create that experience where when you see those photos, you have that memory of being valued and being okay as you are, as opposed to, uh, you know, sort of being this foundation to be worked on. I don't mean to like, I, I don't know if this is a hard turn, but I want to go back to what I, I said at the beginning of, of the episode, when you had said you work on things with like Facebook and Instagram and things like that. So what is happening to our culture? What is happening to the brains and the hearts and the souls of these young kids that can now actually do their own Photoshopping? Shopping? Is that what it's called? <laughs> own Photoshop. On, on their pictures, like what what thoughts do you have about this? I mean, they're being taught at such a young age that their story has to still look a certain way. And that breaks my heart, Lindley. Like what, what are your thoughts about that? Because this is the opposite of what you do. Right, I think I, think I have two thoughts about that. Uh, one of them is in the moment and one of them is, is historical. Um, in for this in the moment perspective, um, yes, we we are handing people who are at formative ages these tools um, that are being used, you know, to harm themselves and others. But we are also handing them untold tools for self-expression. Like never in history has the common man, you know, <laughs> um, just random regular people have had this kind of platform. And we're seeing, uh, we're seeing younger people use these platforms, yeah, to, to, um, to self-harm, but we're also seeing amazing body image activists at 13 or 14 years old on TikTok. We're seeing people using, using these um, Photoshop light apps, these filtering apps to, to you know, make themselves the aspirational version of themselves, but we're also seeing people use that uh, for amazing performance art and self-expression and and demonstrations of how ridiculous beauty standards are. So I think the tools that we give people will be used in ways that reflect cultural values, um, but they're also being used in all sorts of wonderful countercultural ways. Uh, but from a historical perspective. Um, Something I've read that was really important to me to understand how we got here, um, it was in one of Jess Baker's two books, and I'll, I'll have to, maybe we can put it in the show notes which one, I'll have to look up which one, but she talks about how every time um, women have made an advancement in rights, beauty standards have changed, and every time, every time when, when women gain the right to vote, beauty standards changed. Um, when women began to dress slightly more practically in the late 1800s, beauty standards changed and we got the Gibson girl. Uh, when, when women, you know, again, when women gained the right to vote, I'm out of order here historically, but, but when women started working in factories during World War II, beauty standards changed. Uh, it, during the 1960s, when, you know, when the sexual revolution happened, beauty standards changed. And every time they've gotten more and more restrictive. And, and there's all sorts of, I, I want to note here that there's all sorts of issues of race and class and, and socioeconomic status and things that also play into this that we don't have time to cover. 
Um, but I want to note that that these have primarily been standards aimed at uh, at uh, middle class and wealthy white women, and 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 that there are many many more factors that play in here, particularly racism. Uh, so I just I just want to note that that is a thing <laughs> that I'm aware of. But every time these beauty standards have become more restrictive, um, and the penalties for not meeting them change, you know, in proportion. And what this means is that honestly, it's a big distraction because um, there's there's also a quote. I'm half remembering things this morning, but there's also a quote from I think Gloria Steinem um, or Naomi Wolf about how uh, when women are busy losing weight, they don't have the energy to change the world. <laughs> and and this is it's extremely true because how much energy have we wasted on this? I often say to clients, do you realize the potential you have in a positive way to be in the world if you put as much energy into your eating disorder as you did towards something that will that will reflect your true values? I, I say to clients all the time, you know what? I, and sometimes I can tell, like I can tell the ones that are very, they argue and they're negotiable with the, with the treatment team. I'm like, oh, you would be the best lawyer. Like if we could just take this energy and put it somewhere else, you, my darling, are going to be president of the United States. If we could, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that's what that quote meant. No, no, it's true. How much, how much time do we waste? How much energy do we waste on, and, and, I, and I, I want to caveat this again, because uh, I'm not one of the people who says makeup is bad and you should never wear it. Um, because when I talk about meeting cultural beauty standards, um, which includes, you know, your hair, the, the size of your body, uh, whether you wear glasses or contacts, um, every single, the shape of your nose, um, <laughs> your, the way your teeth look, every single aspect of our bodies, the size of your feet. Uh, when we strive to meet beauty standards, we are also surviving in a system that has penalties or rewards for meeting or not meeting those standards. And, and the, those penalties are significantly more severe the more uh, intersections you have. And those are the things that are, for example, I am a fat woman, a very fat woman, and I am marginalized for that. There are limitations to how much I can participate in the world. And, and, and the way I am treated. Uh, but I'm also a white woman, which gives me a number of advantages. It means that I'm not treated poorly for my skin color. If I were both fat and black, um, I would be treated poorly for both of those reasons. And those things add up. So when I talk about intersections, that's what I mean. Um, but, and, that, and that's why it's very important to understand how race plays into beauty standards. But to do this, uh, to do this in a world that penalizes us for not doing it is survival. It is, uh, you know, it, it can literally be life or death. Uh, and so, so I'm not ever going to shame someone for pursuing beauty standards because that is power and, and currency in our society. And, and you get to do you. <laughs> you don't get to, I mean, you know, I don't get to shame you for wearing makeup or not wearing makeup. You do you. And those things are also tools for self-expression. You know, ask any drag queen. That makeup is a is a really powerful tool for self-expression. It's not, it, it can also be a tool of oppression. Um, but I want to be very clear that there's lots of currents going on here that aren't just, you know, beauty, beauty methods of meeting beauty standards are bad. Hair curlers are bad. <laughs> you know, it's way more complicated because as humans, we're complicated. That's how it works. Um, but but pursuing these standards also wastes our time and energy. Um, and how much, how much time and energy do we spend on that? And, and that's time and energy and resources, money, social connections, et cetera, that, that we're not using on living our best lives, um, not using on changing the world, not using for standing up for ourselves. Um, and those are trade-offs that we all get to make. Again, you know, you get to make the ones that you need to in your life, but, and I don't get to tell you what's right or wrong. But, but these are also things that are distractions from the, the work of being ourselves and living our lives and changing things in the way that we want to see them changed. And, and that is a very deliberate thing. I, I want, that's what I really want you to understand is that that is um, the fact that you're having to make those choices is part of a system of power that goes back hundreds of years. 
uh, and actually comes back to racism, um, uh, particularly fat phobia and weight stigma. Those things come back to racism. And there's a, there's a fascinating book called Fearing the Black Body by Dr. Sabrina Strings. It, took me, it did take me two tries to get through it because I'm not used to reading academic material, but it's fascinating. And, and again, it's so important to understand because as a, you know, as a white woman, um, I don't experience oppression based on my skin color. And so I'm essentially collateral damage here. And, and while I'm talking about collateral damage too, I want to touch on, on eating disorders real quick and, and body size. Um, because when I talk about size oppression, uh, one of the common objections that I get is, well, I'm in a thin body or a thinner body and I feel bad about my body too. So everybody feels bad about their body. It's not about, you know, you're not being oppressed. We just all feel bad. And, and the, the answer to that is that we all have body image challenges because we all live in this system that profits from us feeling bad about our bodies and encourages that. Um, but not everyone is systemically limited and discriminated against on the basis of their body size. And that's why there's a difference between feeling bad about your body and being oppressed for it. Um, and, and in the context of eating disorders, it's particularly important to understand this uh, because one of, the, one of the factors around eating disorders is that fat folks are much more likely to be able to access a diagnosis or treatment um, and again, that is part of that system of power and oppression. You speak so, so eloquently, so beautiful. Like it, it is literally taking my breath away, this, this conversation, this dialogue. And, you know, as I always say, I have so many thoughts that I'm having a hard time directing where I want it to go to. One of the things, and this may be off topic, but how you were saying how it's all about power and things are deliberate. If you even notice what commercials are aired during what times, during what shows, they will tailor, quote unquote, to the person who, you know, during the day where they still think that the woman is home watching soap operas, which by the way, no disrespect if that's what you're doing, but that's when you have the the Weight Watchers commercial, the diet commercial, the the plastic surgery. All it is, it is very well thought out. You are you are not going to get these commercials during Super Bowl Sunday or during a regular football game. Like everything is very very methodical. And if you are not aware of that, if you are not an educated consumer, you are going to become hypnotized and mesmerized by these ads, especially because they repeat and repeat and repeat. And I don't know if you have anything to say about that with advertising and marketing. You know, I once dated a guy many, many years ago who uh, saw, he saw me putting on makeup one day and apparently he was the kind of doofus who never realized that I was regularly wearing makeup around him. And, and so, so he saw me putting it on one day and was just astonished. And, and he said, well, oh, well, I, I prefer women who don't wear makeup. And I kind of just made a face at him and kept on doing what I was doing. But, but I think, um, I think the, the analogy here is that um, this whole time he was seeing women who were wearing makeup and didn't think that they were. And so then he was a little shocked. And, and where this comes back is the things that we see regularly influence us. And it's clear that, that because this was a man who had, um, who had just always seen women wearing makeup and not realized it, because uh, I grew up in the South and you did not, you went to the grocery store wearing makeup. I mean, that was how it was. You did not leave the house without putting on makeup. Um, so he'd been seeing all this and he just thought it was people was women's skin that we just all had great skin. Um, and it was, it was fundamentally shocking to him when he figured out that no, we were just all wearing makeup all the time. And, uh, and so when we, uh, become aware of the influences that, uh, that make us feel the way we do about many different things, but including our bodies, um, it can be a little fundamentally shocking to realize how thoroughly our opinions are affected by what we see. So when we are constantly surrounded by Photoshopped bodies, when we are constantly surrounded by um, 
by social media posts that make us think that everybody else is perfect and has a glamorous life except us. Uh, when we are constantly surrounded by diet ads on, you know, on Facebook, on, uh, because I talk a lot about fatness on Facebook, I, I get absolutely bombarded with, with weight loss ads. And I, I mark them all as spam or scams. And, uh, and then they'll stop showing it to me for a little while and then it'll come back. Um, and yes, you can totally mark those as scams because they are. But, uh, but at any rate, these things affect us. I grew up without a TV. Um, I mean, we physically had one in our house, but we didn't have cable. So basically we had PBS and uh, the public broadcasting system for folks who aren't in the US. And, uh, and so I grew up uh, sort of raised by cultural wolves. And so it wasn't until sort of high school that I started being able to access um, things like magazines occasionally or, or pop culture. I just sort of grew up without access to that. And so I absorbed fewer messages about bodies than my peers did uh, because I, I just wasn't exposed to them, but I still, I still absorb some of it. Um, but you can tell the difference in how relatively easy my body image journey has been versus some of my peers and, and some of my friends who were much more exposed to those messages. Um, they do affect us. They do, you know, affect how we look at ourselves and other people. And so the more we can start being aware of what we're being told, that is really the first step to starting to untangle it. It also, uh, I'm going to use the word frightens it because it does. It frightens me that younger souls are being exposed and having access to airbrushing and things like that. And, and I'll tell you why. There is a time in our childhood that we don't know these things. We aren't aware. And so let me let me make sure I say this correctly. So I'll use my own experience. So I was very naive when I was younger and I did not, I actually think it was age appropriate. I didn't know airbrushing existed. This was also 35, 38 years ago, but it existed. It just didn't exist on such a grand level where younger people knew about it, which is unfortunate because that was where some of the seeds of my eating disorder came from. I would look at 17 Magazine, Mademoiselle, you know, whatever they are. And that not realizing that airbrushing hat was happening had a massive impact on me at like 17 or 18, you realize now like six and seven-year-olds are being exposed to seeing kids that are airbrushed at 12 and 13. So these internalized images and thoughts are happening at an even younger age that a body is supposed to look a certain way, that you're not supposed to have wrinkles, that all these things, everything is supposed to look perfect. It just keeps getting younger and younger, which is also one of the reasons why we are seeing so many more eating disorders. I'm getting calls from parents of nine-year-olds saying, my son or daughter has been restricting for six months. You didn't hear of that 30 years ago. I'm sure it existed, but you did. it just keeps getting younger. I literally had to hire clinicians at my center that specifically work with younger kids because the ages just keep getting younger and younger. So I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that or. Yeah, I think uh, again, from a, from a historical perspective, again, this is part of another shift uh, because we now have so much power over our own self-image. We can take our own pictures now uh, of ourselves and put them out for the public to see. Uh, we, it's another of these big shifts in power, which means that again, there is a huge shift in beauty standards. And, and I think uh, from a, uh, an in the moment perspective, the best thing we can do is push back against that and be the example that we want kids to be seen and be the example for young people that we wanna see. Um, and again, there are so many fierce teenage body image activists. Don't get me wrong. That pushback is already happening in, you know, in every generation. But, uh, but, you know, the best thing I can do is show my wrinkles. And now I have, I'm 41. And so I'm starting, you know, I'm starting to, to see signs of aging. Um, but I have a lovely fat face. So, so my wrinkles don't show. Uh, so I have a nice young face. Uh, one of the benefits of being fat. 
but uh, but we can show our wrinkles, show our stretch marks, show our real skin. Um, because the more that the more images that we flood the internet with and flood social media with that are real and genuine and unretouched, uh, the more the more we can help counterbalance that. Um, and and people who are parents, um, I'm not one. I'm not a parenting expert, but but demonstrating the values around bodies that you want to see, you know, not trash talking your body in front of your kids, not making negative comments about other people's bodies or your kids' bodies and being supportive for whoever and whatever they are, uh, is just, uh, you know, not dragging them to Weight Watchers at five years old. Um, you know, uh, putting images of yourself that are honest out there, you know, for them to see, um, it, just supporting them in, in, in whatever way they need for their bodies. Um, that's one way that we can push back against six-year-olds feeling the need to, to filter their selfies um, because we cannot change that system single-handedly, but collectively we can make it unprofitable. And that is when we start seeing cultural changes, when it is not profitable to sell kids diet products, when it's not profitable to, to make people feel bad about their bodies so that they buy stuff to try to fix it. That's when we start seeing cultural changes. So the small things that you can do in your own life collectively will change the world. I think I'm just in a very nostalgic, reflective place because again, going back to the younger generation, the younger children, I remember at 12 years old, playing, being in my body, running. Like I was 12. I didn't know anything about having to, trust me, my eating disorder thoughts started, my body image distress started when I was probably like six years old, but I still, I was a kid at 12. And now they have access to not only all of this social media, but again, the messages now at 12 years old are you still need to change the way you look. And that just breaks my heart. I also want to say that it is very, very true about parents, how they express things in front of their children. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, Andrea's Voice uh, by Tom and Doris Smeltzer. Unfortunately, Andrea died at 19 years old from bulimia. And one of the things that Doris says, I had them on the show very early on in this, this show. I'll just say show twice, everyone. Um, one of the things that Doris said, sort of like, if I only knew then what I know now, every time I looked in the mirror and I criticized my body, my daughter was saying, well, wait a minute, I have that same body. So if you don't like it, then I, I'm not supposed to like it. If you're doing something about it, then I have to do something about it. And so this is where we're talking about one person can have a massive impact. You as, and I, I don't mean to be like you as a parent, but one person can speak positively about their body and have a different impact on a young mind. Yeah, to, to, to wrap up, I want to tell a really quick story about my grandmother's arms. Uh, a few years ago, I had my own portraits done by a, a fellow photographer, and I wore a sleeveless dress, and you can find these photos on my website. They're very cute, and it's, it's, this, it's this cute little dark blue sleeveless dress with, uh, with polka dots that are shaped like hearts all over it. I love it. Uh, but the, um, we went into this little brick alleyway in, uh, in Victoria, British Columbia, and I threw my arms up joyfully and did some very playful poses. And when I got those photos back, the first things I saw were my bingo wings. Uh, and, and that was a challenge for me at the time because I had never seen them uh, displayed like that. And uh, two things hit me right away. One was, oh my gosh, my arms are enormous. Um, and, and, uh, and the second thing was that my grandmother had these exact same arms. And, uh, and, and this is where, honestly, it's what really made me start thinking about stories and stories being held on our bodies uh, because that connection was so immediate. And the thing is that I don't think my grandmother ever loved her body. Um, I think she was ashamed of her arms and I think everyone around her was ashamed of her arms. 
Um, this is not an intergenerational body love story. Um, but when I saw that immediate connection, I loved my grandmother. And I, uh, she passed away when I was young enough that I, I never really thought about her arms one way or the other, other than to notice that they were, that they were large in the way that kids notice bodies and that they, they, that, you know, she had sort of bingo wings that hung down. And I wanted to honor that, that connection, that story, um, and not be ashamed of it. And, you know, I went, yeah, we call those bingo wings, but they're also wings. We have wings in our family. How cool is that? And so now, now, you know, I just call them my wings and, and, you know, they're part of my power because they're part of my story and my heritage and my history. And, uh, and I've done some, some gorgeous art photos of people who have very large wings that hang down beautifully from their arms and empower their flight through life. And yes, I realize this is very hippie and ideal sounding, but that is how we change things is we reframe the, these things about our bodies and about our stories. And, uh, and so, so my grandmother's wings have become a really important part of my own body image story. I also want to say your grandmother's wings, and I'm using your words, were able to wrap around you and hug you and hold you and pick you up and do everything that had to be done. Like we, 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 we are so far disconnected of just even the function of what our body does. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I want to say too, that I know this sounds all very lovey-dovey, but the thing is that, um, without going into my, into my personal history, uh, uh, my family was not, my extended family was not a happy one. There's, there's, um, trauma and heartbreak and, and, a very, very Southern Gothic, you know, history going on there. Um, and so part of that was that I, part of that reframing was that I chose to, uh, rather than this being um, someone who was not a good person all the time, like this, this thing being passed on to me, I, I chose to preserve that in, I did love my grandmother and she was good to me most of the time. And, and, uh, and to take that part of the story to take the powerful part of the story and the, the good part of the story and take that into my body and into my body image and not, and not the other stuff. Um, so I don't, you know, I think it's very easy for, for us when we hear other people's stories of acceptance to go, well, that's different because you had a loving family. That's different because you were thin all along. That's, it was different because you're pretty or whatever, you know, or you're, you're, you're wealthier than I was growing up, whatever. Um, it's really easy for us to find reasons that doesn't apply to us uh, because reasons. And, uh, and we have to, that's part of what we have to work through and that's okay. We all have to do it. Lindley, I could go on easily for another hour. That being said, we do have to wind this down. Is there is there anything that I didn't ask you or that you wanted to share with listeners before I ask your final question? Well, I'm excited for the final question because it actually ties back into what we were just talking about. But I think uh, I think uh, one question that I'm commonly asked on podcasts that I love being asked because I always want to talk about it is uh, is talking about how do I learn to see. Uh, you know, particularly if I don't have a professional photographer on tap, how do I learn to see my body with neutrality or love? How do I, how do I get there from here? And, uh, and my, my first answer is always surround yourself with bodies that look like yours. Surround yourself with bodies that are bigger than yours or a different ethnicity than yours or have different levels of physical ability than yours or have different uh, mental health challenges than yours. Um, because the more, you know, particularly with, with fat bodies, the more that we see bodies of all sizes, uh, the more that we normalize them. Because again, the things that we see repeatedly, uh, you know, if, if we're seeing these Weight Watchers ads repeatedly, that's going to get into our subconscious. If we are seeing wonderful, positive depictions of bodies, and this is so easy now, you know, we can just follow, there's a, an article on my site that has 40 plus uh, very large bodies, body people, you know, these are, these are people, not just bodies, but, but that you can follow on Instagram and you can just go through and follow, follow, follow. And then you have that positive influence. Um, because the more you see all kinds of bodies, not just the Photoshop ones, the more, the more you start to be able to accept bodies that are 
that are like your own and other people's bodies. So that's, that's always something I like to add because it really does work. I am so glad that you said that. And I'm so glad that we're, we have your website. Everything is in the show notes because I want everyone to go to it. And I want people to see this and, and get involved in that way. So Lindley, this is fantastic. Of course, before I say goodbye, I have to ask you, if someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Well, this comes neatly back into our discussion of reframing and, and choosing what to add to our personal stories. Uh, because I am a very fat person who talks about fatness on the internet. I get trolled a lot and, uh, and I block and delete that stuff. You know, I, I'm not here to entertain that stuff. It's not good for my community to see it. So I just, I just delete it. Um, but occasionally somebody gets really creative with their insults and I have chosen to take those and, and I take my favorite ones and I put them on my Facebook bio on my personal Facebook <laughs> and my favorite one so far has been holier than thou problem causer. And, and I had that on my Facebook bio for the longest time. And that is totally what someone would write on a bathroom stall about me. And I, and I, I love it. I was tempted to put it on my business cards, literally. <laughs> I love that. I think that would be fantastic. That's a great response. Lindley, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And thank you for already agreeing to come back. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It has, it has truly been my pleasure. So, all right, everyone, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybytespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at Recovery Bites Pod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit KarenLewisEDC.com forward slash podcast signup to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.